Well, good morning, North Star family and those who are also tuning in from wherever you are. I pray that you've been encouraged so far by the songs and the prayers and the scripture reading that we sent out to you. And uh, if you haven't, uh, just be sure to listen through those at the conclusion of the sermon. Uh, those can be found on our Facebook page or uh, in your email. So now let's begin, and I want to begin by reading uh, our text today, and I will start in Hebrews chapter 8, verse 7. Hebrews chapter 8, verse 7, if you would read along with me, we'll read to the end of the chapter. Hebrews 8, beginning in verse 7. For if that first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion to look for a second. For he finds fault with them when he says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. For they did not continue in my covenant. And so I showed no concern for them, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law into their minds and write them on their hearts. And I will be their God and they shall be my people. And they shall not teach each one his neighbor and each one his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest. For I will be merciful toward their iniquities and will remember their sins no more. In speaking of a new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete. And what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. The word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we are indebted to you beyond our understanding. Yet you have been gracious to us beyond our wildest imaginations of what you could be. So I pray for faith. I pray for understanding that as we look at this marvelous passage, I pray that you would alter us at the deepest level, that we would understand what it is you're doing in the world, what it is you have done in Christ, and what it is you have called us to, and basically what it means to be a Christian, and so we would let the Bible define its own terms. I pray that at the end of this message, everyone who hears it would be encouraged challenged, exhorted, and it may be in many cases rebuked from your love and your truth for their good. And I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So we'll begin in verse 8. We covered verse 7 last week. And verse 8 uh, starts kind of in the middle of the thought, so we'll kind of pick up and readdress uh, what he's talking about here. For he finds fault with them when he says, okay, so right there we need to do a little bit of recap. Finding fault with what? And, and who is the one finding fault? Uh, last week we talked about the fact that uh, Jesus is presented at the beginning of chapter 8 as our great high priest. We have such a great high priest. This isn't just theory. This isn't just a fun theological hobby. This is a fact, a foundational fact for our lives as Christians. We have such a high priest who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven. And so if we have a new priest, and he is not a priest like the old covenant mandated in the sons of Aaron and the Levites, then that means he must be a high priest under or in the context of a new covenant. You change the priesthood, you change the covenant. There's no other way of looking at it. And so when it says he finds fault with them, 
it says that God, it, it, what it means is that, that God is the one who is finding fault. And what we said last week is it's not just because the sin and unbelief of the people. It was built in that the old covenant was limited or would be superseded or surpassed or replaced in some sense by a second covenant. So the old covenant was provisional, built to be temporary. And it explicitly looks forward to something new, to a second covenant. So what follows here in in the second half of verse 8 through verse 12 is a quotation from Jeremiah 31. It's Jeremiah 31 verses 31 through 34. And in the Old Testament, this passage from Jeremiah 31 is probably the most explicit regarding the new covenant that God is going to make. But it's not the only text in the Old Covenant. We'll look at some of the other ones uh, today, but we're, we're not going to have time to look at all of the passages that, that build this expectation for something new, a, a second covenant. And it's one of the reasons you really need to know your Old Testament. Because Jesus doesn't just appear out of nowhere with no expectation, with no precedent for a second covenant. It was built in. And those that were anticipating this second covenant were those who were saved by faith. This is, this is why you can meet someone like Anna and Simeon in the temple who, who were waiting for and yearning for the revealing of God's salvation. They knew that something was coming, but it wasn't because they had some spiritual sense of it. They knew based on the scriptures that something was coming. And one of the main passages that would have let them know is Jeremiah 31, verses 31 through 34. So, here's what is important. The Old Covenant, or the First Covenant, is not old in the sense that it's no longer relevant. It's still relevant. But it is old in the sense that it is the first step in a multi-step process. Okay? And the the example or analogy I would use is is that of a, a building. If you've been involved with construction or if you've had uh, any interaction with architecture or um, if, if you've had a house built for yourself or you're involved in construction right now, as I know as, as some of you are looking towards building a new house, you know that there are many steps involved. And one of the very first steps that's involved is the surveying of the land. And testing the soil for the quality of the foundation, where you can build, doing an environmental impact study. So there's a lot of studies and surveying that needs to happen before you can even dig the first hole to build your foundation. So that you you can't have a building that's going to stand for any real amount of time unless you do that necessary work up front. But if you get stuck in that first stage, if all you're doing is surveying, and if all you're doing is environmental impact studies, and all you're doing is is planning and measuring the distances between trees and roads and easements and all that, you can't ever build a building. So that would be silly to get stuck in that first, while very important phase and essential phase, you can't stay there. And it would even be more crazy to to kind of stretch the, the boundaries of this analogy to insist that the builder, who in this analogy is God, remain in that phase of surveying and studying and measuring and not ever building anything. And this was the error of the religious leaders during Jesus' time. They wanted to stick with or stay with the first covenant because they got comfortable there and thought they could manage it and manage life under it and set their hope on it, but they were not ready for, did not want to move to the next phase. While God is finishing out the rooms and nearing completion of of this grand building project of the history of salvation and redemption in Jesus and his appearing They're still wanting to stay in the surveying phase. So much so that they killed Jesus. Now, I will say also that passages like this 
are in a sense easy to preach. Anyone who has a halfway decent love and appreciation for the Bible should have a lot to say about a passage like this. It's exciting and it lends itself to so many things. My life has been changed forever by Jeremiah 31, 31 through 34 and this quotation of it. And let me just say as an aside, I don't think people should have life verses because that's, that's too narrow. But I think you should devote your life to finding any passage you can in the Bible that will change your life forever. So that's putting yourself under the text and, and seeking to be changed. How many texts can you honestly say have changed your life forever? Changed the way you see everything. This is one of them. And it's no overstatement. To say that my life is found in Jeremiah 31, 31 through 34, and this quotation in Hebrews. All of my faith and the fullness of the, of the Christian religion is contained in a way in this passage. And it's because this is the new covenant. At the very end, Jesus has supper, the Passover meal with his disciples. He raises the cup and he says, this is the blood of the new covenant in my blood. This is the crescendo. This is what God has been building and working on and, and uh, finishing out and making perfect all up until this point. And now we get to enter into it. So here we go. So hold tight. Bible's open, in your laps. Let's look at this new covenant. Second half of verse 8. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Again, this is from Jeremiah 31, 31 through 34. And the context of Jeremiah is that Judah has hit rock bottom in, in more ways than one. Israel, the, the, the northern tribes, the ten tribes of the north after the split, after Solomon died, have, have already been taken into exile by the Assyrians. And they've been there for a few decades. And Judah, a smaller unit of land and, and, and pressed on every side, is, is, is at the brink of disaster. And it has fallen so far down the path of idolatry that God says through, to them through Jeremiah that judgment is coming and there's nothing you can do to change that. There, there's no more chances, no more delays, which he had delayed it multiple times. But no more. Judgment is coming. And it will fall on Judah. And Israel, Judah had fallen so far down the road of idolatry that God says to them at one point that their sins are greater than the sins of their sister, meaning Israel, the northern tribes, which is stunning because the amount of, like just in terms of repetition of idolatry under Israel is, is far more than Judah. But basically after Israel was taken into exile by Assyria, those decades after that, it had gotten so bad in Judah, especially under King Manasseh, that God says, your, your sin is worse than that of Israel. And so Jeremiah is the prophet God raises up to tell them this is coming. And in the very next chapter, so, so the new covenant is mentioned in chapter 31. In the very next chapter, Jeremiah 32, Nebuchadnezzar and his armies are at the gate and laying siege to Jerusalem and it will fall. So right before it all comes crashing down, right before God's righteous, holy, pure judgment through Nebuchadnezzar falls on his people, Judah, we get this promise of a new covenant. So it's significant that God is the one who says, I will. This underscores, and you can see this in, in the middle of, of the verse. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will establish a new covenant. Um, 
This underscores God's creative, loving, sovereign will. Even as Judah is on the precipice of disaster that they had gotten themselves into and that God brought as punishment for their sin, God says, I will do something new. It's not merely make the same covenant anew. It's not covenant renewal, as some say. This is something different. It really is new. God is doing something unprecedented and surprising, just like Isaiah says in Isaiah 48, verse 6. You have heard, now see this, and will you not declare it? From this time forth, I announce to you new things, hidden things that you did not know. In many other places in the prophets, God says, if I were to tell you, you wouldn't even believe it. And it would be believable if God says, all right, we're going to have a covenant renewal session. There are many times in the Old Testament where that happened, where a leader comes up and leads the people to uh, recommit to the covenant that God made with the people back in the Exodus. But that's not what's happening here. It's, it's actually really new. And here's how the pro- God through the prophet makes us understand that it is something new. Verse 9, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers. On the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. This is very important for understanding what we're talking about. There are tons of covenants in the Old Testament. There's a covenant, it's implied, but there is possibly a covenant made with Adam. There's a covenant with Noah. There's a covenant with Abraham. There's a covenant with Jacob. Covenant with Isaac. Covenant with David, Solomon, and there are many others that you could say God has some kind of covenant with these individuals. So why select this one? The new covenant is different than all of those, but why select this covenant? The covenant that God made with their fathers when he took them by the hand out of Egypt. Because that covenant was the only one that God made with all the people. Even though the covenant with Abraham has implications for his descendants, the covenant is made with Abraham. So the covenant that God made with the people through Moses was actually with the people directly. And so half of the people go up on the top of one mountain and half of the people go up on the top of another mountain and they read the blessing and the curse and they all agree this is a covenant that God makes with the entire nation directly. Not just with Moses. Moses mediates it, but it's with the people. So why does this matter? Why is this important for us? Because this new covenant is the same way. It's not a covenant made with an individual, like a pope or the apostles, or even with just Jesus directly. This new covenant is made directly with the people of God. And that's why it's being compared with the covenant at Sinai and in the Exodus. And it's also important because, understand this, the moral content is essentially the same. But it is set at odds with the covenant made during the Exodus. So you have essentially... Two mountains at odds. You have Mount Sinai and then you have Mount Zion. Paul makes this distinction in Galatians and the author of Hebrews is going to make this distinction in chapter 12. So th- this, is, this is something that uh, actually goes through the entire Bible. This, this contrast of two mountains. Which mountain essentially do you belong to? Do you belong to Mount Sinai? And that covenant, or do you belong to Mount Zion and what God is doing that is new? We're not going back to Eden. We're not going back to uh, to Sinai, but we're going on, onward to Zion. It is different. Not like this covenant that I made with their fathers. Second half of verse 9. For, or because... They did not continue in my covenant, and I showed no concern for them. 
declares the Lord. This is a very fascinating text for many reasons, a fascinating phrase. Um, First off, this is the reason for the new covenant. Okay, catch this. Look very closely. It's not like the covenant that I made with their fathers because... You see that in in the second half, for. Anytime you see for in the Bible, in many cases it means because. Because they did not continue in my covenant. So the reason there is need for a new covenant is because the people did not continue in, could not continue in, his covenant. It's also fascinating because this is actually a quotation from what is called the LXX, or the Greek translation of the Old Testament that Jewish scholars translated before Jesus came onto the scene. And it's slightly different. If you were to turn, like, especially if you're in the ESV, if you turn back to Jeremiah 31 and you read the second half of verse 9, it's going to read like this. My covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. So the first difference is helpful because it actually uh, equates this idea of breaking and this idea of not continuing in. And so the the reason I think the author, for a number of reasons, he, he uses the Greek translation. But one of the things he's underscoring here and that the Greek translation underscores is that it doesn't have to be just a hard break. It's not like in your relationship with God or the people's relationship with God that there, that there is a time when we all gather together as a people and you say, uh, the Lord is no longer our God or something like that. And then you go your way and you worship Baal or Asherah or possessions or whatever. It's not like that. He's saying here, they did not continue in it. Meaning that the, the trend away from the covenant to where you're outside the covenant can be so gradual that you might not even detect it until you're so far outside of it that you're too far gone. So that's kind of the point in Hebrews, isn't it? Let us hold fast to what we have heard lest we drift from it. And the second part this difference in, in, in the Hebrew translation that we have, if you were to go back to Jeremiah, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. And, and here in uh, the Greek version of it, I showed no concern for them. Gives us insight on both sides of God's perspective and feelings towards covenant unfaithfulness. So earlier he's underscored that he has delivered them from Egypt. He underscores the Exodus. And it's underscoring God's faithful care for the people. And we know that marriage is given to humans. We know this from Ephesians 5, Ephesians 5, that marriage is given to humans to give us an idea of what it means for God to have a people. The relationship between God and his people is imaged or foreshadowed or shown in the relationship between husband and wife. This should evoke in you memories of the book of Hosea, many other places we could go to especially in Ezekiel. But you get kind of the the opposite phrase here. I showed no concern for them. Um, So the idea here is that because Israel has been unfaithful, God will therefore show no concern for them. That he's essentially putting them away. This is very severe. What are we to make of this God? Our God, the only God. If you think about it, if you look at the Old Testament, that that phrase showed no concern for them, that's actually putting it mildly. If you look at the intensity of God's ferocious love and pure holiness towards his people, showed no concern seems like an understatement. To the point where Paul can even say in Romans 11 that God has cut off the natural branches. 
And really, it is not as if God is being unfaithful to them and having no concern for them. He is being faithful to his word in bringing about the curses that were promised if the people were unfaithful to the covenant. That's what's happening here. Though I was their husband, though I took them out of the land of Egypt and led them by my hand and brought them into a good land, they were unfaithful to me and I had promised that if they were unfaithful to me, this is what would happen, so this is what's going to happen. No concern from me on my behalf for them. No concern for their goodness. My goodness is being turned away from them. And it will only be judgment to bring them back. Verse 10. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. So earlier in the, ver- uh, the passage, rather, at the end of, ch- of verse 8, you see the new covenant that I will make with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. And now in verse 10, he says that I will make with the house with- of Israel. What- what's happening here? Is Judah being left out? No, this actually indicates a reunification of Judah and Israel. And here's the crazy thing. That hasn't ever really happened. Not in the sense that maybe the Jews were expecting it to. And they probably didn't even want it. When you get to Jesus' time, the the whole Samaritan issue is, is that very divide between Judah and Israel. Those Samaritans to the north. That's Israel. So, so when he says with the house of Israel, this is indicating that, that all the people of God essentially are going to be reunited together. This hints at a more perfect house of Israel, those who share the faith of Abraham, all those who follow King Jesus, the heir of the throne of David, the true Solomon, the priest forever. Jesus unites all of God's people into the Israel of God. It's from Galatians 6.16. I know that's controversial, but I really don't think there's another way to read this and to put ourselves in this new covenant than to understand when he says, with the house of Israel, the Israel of God. All of God's people, all those who share the faith of Abraham, one who is an Israelite from the heart. Citizens of the heavenly Jerusalem. See, this is part of the point. When we talk about the new Jerusalem, the Jerusalem in heaven, or the holy of holies that's in heaven, the idea is these earthly shadows that we have had in human history through the Old Testament, if there is something more real that these were just shadows of, then you want to belong to the real thing. You want to be a part of that, not the shadow anymore. So what does it mean to be an ethnic Jew if you're not a real citizen of the heavenly Jerusalem? It's worthless. What is it to be a worshiper of God under the old code if that's just the shadow and the real holy of holies is in heaven where the eternal priest serves Jesus? Then what is the point of doing all this? It's worthless. You want to be a follower of Jesus. What is Israel without the real temple? without the real Holy of Holies, without the real Jerusalem where God sets his name. So put away all your ideas about being Jewish. If you are in Christ, you are under this new covenant. You are sons and daughters of God, and all the blessings of God are yours in Christ. And then he says, after those days... This indicates a a flavor of way far out, a a far time ahead of us. So it's not in these days. It's not after these days. It's not in those days. It's after those days. So it's like four degrees of separation from the present. As the feeling of being a long way off. So there is something that would happen. In Jeremiah's time, they would be taken into exile. But it is something for them to look forward to, even if it would not happen in their own day. It's something that they trust in, something that they trust in Yahweh to do. And that is faith in God. And then again, we see this idea that I will make. This is the covenant that I will make. It's it's worth underscoring again that God is the one who initiates this covenant. And really all covenants of any significance in the scriptures. There's no committee of Israelites. There's not even a school of prophets that come together and say to God, Look, 
Um, we couldn't keep the covenant. The people obviously can't keep the covenant. We need something else. You got to think up a better way. We've got a few ideas. We've got plans A, B, and C, or a combination of all three and plan D. So, uh, Lord, would you please inaugurate this new covenant and we can have a better relationship? God is the one who initiates this covenant, and He is the in, in a sense, the only party of any significance. He makes the covenant. He guarantees the covenant. And he promises, especially in this case, to do the obligations of the covenant. And here's what they are. Second half of verse 10. I will put my laws into their minds and write them on their hearts. And I will be their God and they shall be my people. So what is the content of the new covenant? It's this. This is what God is going to do. It's not a ton of detail. We have other Old Testament passages, and they help us understand the content. But here we get a very clear, very specific picture of the heart of the new covenant. And then there are a few important insights here. First is that God does not relax in the least the moral requirements for holiness for his people. Holiness and purity are still the most basic requirements for having a relationship with God. So we, uh, on the one hand, need to reject any kind of what is called antinomianism or living without law or living just sinfully because let grace abound. And at the same time, we need to reject any kind of legalism. The expectation for holiness remains. The difference is, in this covenant, that God is the one. God is the one who promises to bring it. Because he's going to write it on our hearts and on our minds. Second insight. The end goal is always in view with God. And that is to be our God. And for us to be his people. Well, isn't he always our God? He's the only God. So if there is a God, he's our God too, right? That's not what he's saying here. Obviously, he is the creator of all things and there is no other God. But what God means when he says, I will be their God, it indicates a, a flavor of nearness. Just like the psalmist says in Psalm 73. But for me, it is good to be near God. And also there's a sense of willingness and joy. Even for those who hate God, he is still their God because there is no other God. But when he says, they shall be my people, I will be their God, it, it has a flavor, a sense of, of willingness and joy. Just like Joshua says, choose you this day whom you will serve. But for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. It's a, it's a willingness, a, a glad realization, recognition, and submission to God as our God. He will really be my God. And I will really love and like it. And I will live in a way that is consistent with him being my God. And the difference is, this, this is what you need to know from this. Obviously, that, hopefully that all made sense to you. But the difference with this new covenant, that was the expectation under the old covenant. The difference with the new covenant is that God is the one who gives us the necessary heart. That's the point of the new covenant. You can see parallel passages in Ezekiel about the new covenant. And the, almost exclusively the terminology God uses through Ezekiel is the need for a new heart. And there's a promise of a new heart. And Jesus uses the term new birth. So we have all of these overlapping ideas that you need a new heart, you need your eyes illuminated, you need the new birth, you need the law of God written on your heart and your mind, and all of these essentially mean the same thing. And it's all something that God does. You don't do this for yourself. So I need to ask you, all of this imagery, all of this change, at the most fundamental level, the idea is that you are being changed and altered at, at, at your heart level to love God. Is this you? 
has that most basic fundamental change happened in your heart? We need to speak biblically when we talk about being a Christian. If being a Christian means anything from a biblical perspective, it means being under this new covenant or else you're not in Christ. And if you're under this covenant, then that means that God has changed your heart. You have received the new heart. You have been born again. His law has been written on your heart and your mind. Otherwise, what's the point? Has this change happened in you? So what if you say you have faith? So what if you think that you believe the right things? So what if you have a family heritage of following the Lord? So what if you're really involved in church? So what if you've given your life to ministry or been a generally good person? All of that can be self-deception or from the enemy giving you a false sense of assurance and safety. But you know what can't be self-made? And what can't be the enemy trying to deceive you? A burning desire for the Lord himself. A delight in his holiness from the center of your being. And not for its benefits, but so that you can have more of God. Paul says in Romans 6 verse 19, But thanks be to God... That you who were once slaves of sin, sin have become obedient. How? From the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed. Is it coming from within or are you just having to force it on yourself because you don't want to be embarrassed by the culture that you've associated with because you call yourself a Christian outwardly, but inwardly you have no desire for holiness, no love for God. Is that you? Or have you really been born again? Has the law of God been written on your heart and mind? We do ourselves no favors. And we do no favors to the people we evangelize or to our children To give them the sense that if we just pray a prayer, then that's proof positive that we're Christians. There will be millions who have prayed the so-called sinner's prayer who will tragically spend eternity in hell because they thought they could earn entrance into heaven with mere words. And they've never experienced the new heart the new birth, or had the law of God written on their hearts or minds. They're outside the covenant, not in Christ. (sighs) Have you been born again? Do you have this new heart? Do you have the law of God written on your heart? Have you repented from the heart? Hebrews 12, 14, strive for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. Usually, covenants have two sides. You will do this, and I will do this. You will keep the law, and I will bless you. Or you will break the law, and I will curse you. That's the essence of the old covenant. But this one is different. Even though we just explained a lot of the results of the new covenant, that what God is going to do is change us from the heart so that we love him and we want to be near him and we want to be holy like him from the heart. It's not a two-sided covenant. It's not, I will do this and you will do this. It's, I will do this. I will do it. And that's what sets the new covenant apart in so many glorious ways than the old covenant. God will do it. And that's the encouragement here, even though this has been perhaps in your estimation or how you've felt this land on your ears harsh. The idea is that it's not something you squeeze out of yourself and make it happen. It is something that God does. And just as a clarification, 
This law that is being spoken of here is not the law of Moses. It is different than the old written code as the New Testament calls it. Uh, you can go to a few places. I, I won't read through them. I'll give you the references. 1 Corinthians 9.21, a very important distinction between the law of Moses and the law of God or the law of Christ. And then Romans 7, 4 through 6, if you want to research that further. There's a new way of the spirit. Verse 11, and they shall not teach each one his neighbor and each one his brother saying, know the Lord for they shall all know me. From the least of them to the greatest. This is the first, or at least as far as the text is concerned, the first result of the new covenant. There are tons of results. There are innumerable results of the new covenant in the life of the believer, in the life of the one who is under the new covenant in Christ. But this is the one that God chooses to highlight here. And I think this is, for the most part, a beautiful illustration of the extent of the new covenant and of the superiority of the new covenant versus the old covenant. Do you remember in the old covenant in the old Testament, rather how Moses was called the friend of God? God speaks about Moses and he says, it's not like other prophets and I give them a word or, and they go tell the people with Moses. I speak face to face as friend with friend. But for the average Jewish worshiper, you came to the tabernacle, and for the most part, you were outside. You gave your offering, and the priests took the offering to the altar and sacrificed it. And then only the high priest on the Day of Atonement once a year went into the inner chamber, the Holy of Holies, and sprinkled the blood of the sacrifice on the ark. So there, there's a sense of distance. Even the most holy person, presumably, in the nation he could only go once a year and encounter the presence of God in the Holy of Holies. So the point here, I think, is that we're no longer standing outside. It's no longer a sliding scale and it's no longer a proximity issue. How close are you to God? If you're in this covenant, you are with God. God essentially dwells in you. You are the temple of the Holy Spirit. And this is the, the, the debate that Jesus essentially puts to rest with the woman at the well. well. She says, well, your fathers say we should worship in Jerusalem. Our fathers say we should worship here in Samaria. And Jesus says, the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers of God will worship him in spirit and in truth. It's no longer an issue about place. It's an issue of the heart. And God indwells us through the spirit. They shall all know me. That carries a deep sense. It's not that you just know theology. The idea is that you would know him. Is this you? Are you in the new covenant? And it's not as if there's no need for teaching under the new covenant. You'd have to undermine a lot of what Jesus said. The, the idea here isn't that we don't need teaching inside the new covenant community. It's that if you're in the new covenant, you know God. That's the point. It's not a further level of your Christian maturity to know God. If you're in the covenant, if you've been born again, you actually do know God because you can cry now, Abba, Father. Do you know him? Or do you just know things about him? Are you in this new covenant? Have you made the Christian life something that has enough benefits if God is merely an idea in your head, is it still worth it to you? Can you echo with Paul in Philippians? Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you both to will and to work his good pleasure. Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? Do you really know the Lord? There's a very easy, very biblical way to answer that question. 
And it's this. How much do you want to know him? How much do you want to know him more? Hosea 6, 3. Let us know. Let us press on to know the Lord. His going out is as sure as the dawn. He will come to us as the showers, as the spring rains that water the earth. Psalm 27, 4. One thing have I asked of the Lord that I will seek after that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all my days to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. Moses says in Exodus 31:18, please show me your glory. Philippians 3, 8, indeed, I count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. 2 Corinthians 13, 18, And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed from one degree of glory to the next. For this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. But let him who boasts, boast in this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord who practices steadfast love and justice and righteousness in the earth for in these things i delight do you see how that's a universe of difference from merely praying a prayer or doing good outward acts signing a card even getting baptized is this you Do you know the Lord? And there's room for frustration in this, right? And that will accompany every stage. At any stage of your knowing of the Lord, the desire of the worshiper is to know him more. That that, that is echoed in the verses that we just read. So it's not as if if you feel at all frustrated that you don't know the Lord enough, then that means you don't know him at all. It's that his spirit is in you desiring to know the Lord more. So there can be real frustration and and just angst in your heart that I, I don't love him the way I want to. I don't know him the way I want to. That's the spirit at work in you transforming you to want to pursue him. But if you can't really resonate at all with any of those passages that I just quoted, if there's no real burning desire to know him, at any point, then it is not stretching the text to say you're not a Christian. I'm sorry. They will all know me. From the least of them to the greatest. It's loving, I think, for me to bring up that question. This is the only covenant. There is no other way. Do you know the Lord? Do you even want to know him in a way anything close to being the fullness of your heart's desire? Or at least do you see that it is not the fullness of your heart's desire to know him and that makes you frustrated and you want to do whatever you can even if it is weak and stumbling and filled with false starts to get there. But before we forget... This is something that the Lord does. That's the point of this new covenant. This kind of love and knowing the Lord is not something that you can just squeeze out of yourself by reading your Bible enough or doing enough things or sacrificing enough. The point of the message today is not try harder, do better. That's the worst kind of legalism. But what are we to do? We, are, we, we want something to do. We want a step or something to do. And this is where all of Jesus' entreaties to us come in. And, and I think answer the question, come to me, those of you who are weary, maybe meaning tired of trying to manufacture this love of God by yourself. Come to me, all you who are weary, and I will give you rest. Cast yourself upon the mercy of Christ. He's the mediator of this new covenant. 
He is the narrow gate. He has eternal life and will give it to whomever he will. And he is the one who gives the spirit, the one who actually brings these desires from us. And he gives the spirit without measure. Verse 12. For, or because, I will be merciful toward their iniquities and will remember their sins no more. How is this possible? How can God do this? How can he initiate this new covenant? If you listened through the songs that were part of the order of worship that was sent out, Psalm 24 was the psalm. And the idea raised, the question raised by the psalmist is, who will be able to ascend the mountain of God? It is only those who are pure in heart who do not speak falsehood and who do not lift up their soul to what is false. But that's us. We have sinned. But what you see in Psalm 24 even is that the king of glory ascends the hill. Who is this king of glory? Be lifted up, you gates. Open up, O ancient doors. That the king of glory may come in. So the idea is in that psalm, anyone in his procession, anyone who is following that king, those who seek his face, according to the psalm, are able to enter and ascend the hill with him. The idea is that the king of glory returns with his liberated captives, being liberated from their sins. What this passage, this new covenant passage, doesn't answer specifically is how it is that Yahweh can forgive sins. That's the big question raised. How can this happen? How can it be that God is going to be finally, in, in, in total universal terms, merciful towards our iniquities and remembering our sins no more? Now, it's implied there, there was no making of any covenant without some type of sacrifice. So that's implied. It's also implied in the idea of forgiveness of sins. Looking back to the covenant made with the people. There was always some type of death involved. But forgiveness under the old covenant worked this way. Okay, here's the plan. You're going to sin and you're going to break this covenant. So when that happens, make this or this sacrifice and then I will forgive and uh, you will have atoned for your sins, essentially. So, and then when you sin again, you got to bring this sacrifice, and then on and on and on and on it went. This covenant is, I will forgive. I'll be merciful. So this should have created in the people an expectation for a new sacrifice, something that is outside of the parameters of the old covenant, a once-for-all-time sacrifice that would enable God to be merciful towards all the iniquities of his people and remember all of their sins, past, present, and future, no more. A sacrifice that is so great and so perfect that it allows God to be perfectly just and permanently forgive sins for his people. And you shall call his name Jesus for he will save his people from their sins. Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. I will remember your sins no more. That statement intensifies what we should understand when he says forgive. You ever have someone say, I forgive you, and then they hold it over your head as ammunition forever? Is that how God works? Is that how you want him to work in his forgiveness towards you? Is that what Jesus means when he says, I do not say to you seven times, but 70 times seven. The flavor and the magnitude of this forgiveness is such that he's not going to even remember it. 
So forgiveness and and God's ability to cast away sins on the cross and destroy them in the death of his son is so central to this covenant that Jesus can very clearly say without any type of him hawing or clarification, if you do not forgive others, then neither will my father in heaven forgive you. It's so central. The new covenant doesn't even work without God forgiving sins. Because what we're saying is, if we're unwilling to forgive others, then we really don't understand what what David echoes in Psalm 51, that against you and you alone have I sinned, that all sin, ultimately, in every case, God is the most offended party. And if we hold on to things, if we don't really forgive in the way God forgives, we're essentially saying we don't believe that. And you might just be betraying the fact that you're not in the covenant. So when God says, I will remember their sins no more. It's not like we do. Okay, yeah, sure, I forgive you. There's some big words, important words, beautiful words that we need to bring back so that we can understand the gospel in the most basic foundational Christian sense. And in the way that it ought to influence our relationship. Here's the first big word absolution that you are absolved of your sins it means that essentially they are no more it is as if you did not do them you are exonerated meaning you are found innocent that the, the evidence is put forward Christ's righteousness is enough and you're, it, it is not the, like, well, we've pardoned you. The idea is you're exonerated. You, you go free. I'll remember their sins no more. The only one who could ever have any kind of lasting and important charge against you, the God of all ages, says, I remember your sins no more in this new covenant. Found innocent, justified. That's the flavor, the weight of what we should feel when we read in the New Testament. Justified by faith, that through faith in Christ, believing in him, trusting in him, casting ourselves upon his mercy, that God finds us innocent. Is that the flavor in your relationships? And if not, I know it's difficult. It's very difficult to forgive this way. In fact, it, got, it costs even God his own son in order to forgive us this way. But if you cannot and do not forgive people this way, then God will not forgive you. You betray that you're outside the new covenant without hope. And without God in the world. What am I to do? Throw yourself on the mercy of Christ. Just like the tax collector says. Not willing to lift his eyes up to heaven. But beating his chest says. Have mercy on me. A sinner. This man goes down to his house justified. Not the other one. In speaking of a new covenant. He makes the first one obsolete. And what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. The old covenant is no more. In Christ, in casting all our hope on him, we are not under law, but under grace. I know I've spoken very boldly. But none of the things I've said, especially in places where you might have taken the most offense, is anything different than quotations of other passages of Scripture answering questions about this passage of Scripture. I want you to be saved. I want you to enter this new covenant. There is no other way. The last thing this church or evangelicalism in general needs is more people who have convinced themselves that they are in Christ when they have no biblical reason for thinking so. Repent. Flee to the Lord Jesus Christ, the only 
rock of refuge. Let's pray. Father, you are great and merciful beyond all comprehension. I ask that those who have not been born again, who have not received the new heart, who have not had your law written on their hearts and minds, who do not know you as friend speaks with friend, would realize today must be for them the day of salvation, that there is nothing to be gained in pretending any longer. And pray that we would release bitterness. Pray that, that we would release fascination with things that are not worth our attention. And that we would press on to know you. Pray that we would understand the magnitude, the glory, the significance of this new covenant. Pray it would change our lives forever. Make us whole. Wash us white as snow. In Jesus' name, amen.